Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Hey, Al, thanks for your presentation. Uh, my question is quite simple. Uh, the fact that Lathbridge didn't make the ministers, they, no, we have no ministers out of the Lathbridge, do you think that there's a message in that, or do you think it's just uh, leaving them uh, more time to deal with the Wild Rose writings around surrounding Lathbridge? Uh, that's that's an interesting uh, suggestion. <clears throat> in political science, this comes right out of my uh, Canadian politics lecture. Cabinet does two things: it's it's a governing body and a representational body, and those things are sometimes in tension. Uh, only Alison Redford knows sort of what what motivated her choices, and from all reports, this was very much her decision and less delegated to committee than her uh, previous cabinet. My take on it from the outside is that she focused very much on the first, on the governing. She picked the people that she wanted uh, and that she thought would be good for the portfolios, irrespective of where they are. So there are also complaints on the gender front. For example, the number of women in cabinet is lower proportionally than the number of women in their caucus, which is striking considering the premier is is um, female as well. I, I, I don't think those factored in very much. Um, we also need to look at the committee structure as well. And uh, so Bridget Pasteur, for example, is on the priorities committee of cabinet, which is the inner cabinet, which is really the guiding committee of this larger body, which is an influential kind of place. So we have to see uh, every premier tinkers with how the, the governing structures work. So I'm not sure it's as dire as a lot of people are making out to be. But my take on it is that she was motivated mostly on just getting the people to get the best people in the job as she perceived it at the time. Hi, Harold. A uh, couple things. The first thing is I would like your reaction to my take on this election, which is let it put to rest for the rest of time this notion that the Liberals and the NDP ought to cooperate as a progressive alternative. <laughs> because as this election showed... The Liberals will not necessarily collapse to the NDP. They're just as happy to go to the Conservatives and, and, uh, and guarantee them a majority. So that's the first observation. And the second has to do with Alison Redford's centrist or brand, if you will. Right. And it is my contention, and I'm going to challenge you on that, that, sh or that in fact on the things that matter as we go into another resource boom, she is not, in fact, centrist, and she is happy to toe the Harper line, which is to put the entire resources of both the federal and provincial governments at the behest of the oil companies to pull the oil sands out of the ground as fast as we possibly can and ship it out in its rawest form with the fewest uh, value-added jobs as possible. So your take on those two things. Okay. Thanks. For those of you who don't know, that's Shannon Phillips. Now, a political science effect that I've named after her. So, uh, the um, for the first question, I, what's striking to me about the NDP campaign is, is just how solid that NDP vote is. And if you look, that that NDP vote is is at its consistent core. And you're right. I mean, they didn't. I didn't comment much on the NDP campaign, but. They didn't do a particularly good job of eating into the liberal support, but to me that suggests that a lot of the left-leaning liberals had probably already drifted over. So I, I think you're right. I mean, I think the liberals have always struggled with distinguishing themselves more from the conservatives. When they have tended towards the left, then they run into that problem. How are they like the NDP? So, yeah, I, I think you're right on that. 
For your second uh, broader challenge, when, when I use the term centrist, I'm using it relative to Alberta. And Alberta is, the center in Alberta is not necessarily the center in Ontario or Quebec or elsewhere. So relatively speaking. So you're right. I mean, I, I think on that, um, uh, on the question of, of energy resources, I, I think she very much wants to do what's, what's in the best interest of the oil and gas industry. Um, but, for example, she, she very much went after uh, Daniel Smith on denying climate change, for example. She at least acknowledges it's a problem, which uh, is progress, I suppose. Um, so I, I, I see where you're coming from, but I, I still contend relative to Alberta as a whole. I think they are pretty much in the middle. We talk about the median voter theory, which is the idea that Governments tend to govern close to where the middle of the road voter goes, and I, I think that's where the conservatives are now. And that might not be the center as we might define it in some abstract ideological terms, but I think if we were to aggregate people's policy preferences, I, I think the conservatives would still very much be in the center. But I do take your point, and I, I, I do see what you're saying. Thank you for an excellent presentation. We, we really loved seeing the lines move around <laughs> on your graph. My name is Frances Schultz. <clears throat> One of my questions, my question is with respect to her expanding the conservative image again. Do, do you think that if she deals with the land use issue, which was a big problem in the rural areas for their vote, do you think that if she deals with that, that she will be biting into the wild rose portion of your graph? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that the losses in southern Alberta are irreversible for her, um, but they were quite a bit behind. They, they lost some of those districts by substantial margins, so there's a lot to eat into. But clearly that was the issue uh, in the southern third to half of the province was property rights. And if there's one lesson they have to take away from this, if they want to regain this, they need to do something on that front, and that's their best ticket to regain those. So, so I absolutely agree with you. What that looks like exactly, I'm not sure, because the idea of power, power lines coming from the north, for the north, economic development in terms of power is is an important part of their economic development strategy, and you need power lines to markets. So the danger is that can come at some expense to the northern part of the province. So it's a difficult, difficult balancing act. But you're right. I mean, I think that's clearly the issue that everybody was talking about in rural areas and was the most salient single issue, and that's what they need to deal with. So I agree. I, I think they could make some effort and roll some of that back. Thank you very much, Harold, for a very uh, interesting presentation. My name is Mark Sandylands, and when I saw Fran Schultz ahead of me in line, I thought she's going to ask my question, and she did. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll rephrase it slightly. So uh, do, do you think, and I think you have said, that the, uh, the property rights issue, Bill 50, Bill 36, et cetera, were the determining factor uh, south of Calgary, uh, south of Edmonton even, um, what about that, and this is my, my new twist on it, what, what about that chunk, uh, it uh, includes uh, Vegreville, I think, or, or nor northeast of Edmonton. What would be the factor there that turned it in favor of the Wild Rose, if you can put your finger on it in, in just one constituency? That's, that's a good question, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I haven't looked closely enough at that particular district. My guess, completely uneducated, top of my head, is that it's probably a local candidate effect. That, that would be my guess. Um, 
but I, I don't know. It is the odd one, just like Banff Cochrane is the odd one in the in the south. Um, we'll call it random noise in my nice parsimonious explanation. I was I was um, so so I don't know. I, I suspect it's just very particular local effects. Um, what I, I was. We were talking at our table over lunch. If you go on the CBC website, if you go look at the vote compass data, they actually have all the answers people gave mapped on all the districts in the province. And actually, strikingly, the one that looks the most like the electoral results was actually the blood alcohol limit issue, if you can believe it. The .05 was the one that mapped closest. People who had the most trouble with that dropping the blood alcohol limit issue uh, that mapped most closely to the patterns of wild rose support than any other issue, which which surprised me, right? Because people talked about that a bit early on, but it seemed to get swept away and everything else. But it, it's interesting to page through there if you want to see which particular issues. And it also shows Lethbridge West, how Lethbridge West actually does very much stand out in southern Alberta. I'm Bev Muntalathustone. Thank you very much for your talk. I can see why Melanie Thomas was always raving about you. <laughs> <laughs> I rave about Melanie Thomas, so it's, it's mutual. Good. <laughs> At our table, the big discussion was about the increased number of voters, and <clears throat> we wondered two things, whether you think that increase will be maintained, and do you have any idea of the demographic of that increase? In other words, was it the conservatives who had been sitting home, uh, sitting on their hands, or was it more widespread than that? Thank you. Uh, good question. I was hoping somebody would ask about voter turnout, and this was one of the things that in my trash bin on my computer at home, all the slides I left out. And this was one on the voter turnout trend. I've, I haven't seen a final number from Elections Alberta. My estimates were it was around 55% roughly. Um, do I think this is a permanent increase? No, I don't. Um, so, so I'll back up. Alberta has astronomically low voter turnout. In the last election, it was just over 40% which from what I've seen, and I've said this many times, and no one's given me evidence to contradict me, so I'm going to continue to repeat this possible myth, which is that was the lowest voter turnout for any provincial election in Canadian history. Um, and uh, so we're coming from a very low baseline. There's, there's a theory in voting. It's, it's in American literature. It's called the rule of three. Uh, it's been adapted to Canada, the rule of two. When people are growing up, getting them to vote in their first two elections in which they're eligible is very important to create the long-term habit of voting. But when people grow up in an uncompetitive environment, there's not much point, and they're socialized to not vote. Um, so people were asking. I was getting phone calls on Election Day but from reporters, what did I think the voter turnout was going to do? And I was optimistic, and I said, if it's great, I'd be really excited to see it hit 60%. And we got pretty close to that. I think I was driven a lot by short-term kinds of factors. There was a lot of attention. I can't recall a provincial election in Alberta since 1993 for sure, and maybe even before that, where so many people were talking about this election. People I don't normally talk about politics with were talking about it, and that's very unusual. So I think there was that heightened interest. It was competitive. It was close. Now, who is turning out? I honestly do not know. Um, to determine that, we need to do the very careful studies, and I know one that's being done by a couple of friends of mine at the University of Calgary, which we'll probably get at that, looking at what kind of people. Were they conservatives? Were they not conservatives? In 2008, they did a study, and they found that the people staying at home weren't disillusioned liberals or New Democrats who figured, oh, 
why vote is not going to make a difference. They actually found that most of the non-voters were actually conservatives, would probably vote a conservative had they turned out and vote. Um, anecdotally, I saw lots of people who weren't traditional conservatives who hadn't voted before were showing up to vote conservative to stop Wild Rose. I did see that. Um, there were also some people who were mobilized by Wild Roses, here's their chance to throw these guys out. There was a bit of both, I would suspect. My guess would be it's more of the first. I think they were people who were maybe complacent and were reasonably happy with the Conservatives showing up to keep them in power is my educated guess, but I have no data to back that up whatsoever. But that, that's my guess. Uh, thank you, Harold, for your presentation. Terry Shellington. Um, to me, I'd be interested in hearing you comment further on the climate science uh, rumble within the election campaign because I found that one of the most intriguing little ripples uh, to see the leader of the Conservative Party beating uh, Daniel Smith over the head around climate science when I didn't realize that the majority of the Conservative caucus believed in climate science. And, um, and I wonder if you'd taken a poll of the, of the Conservative caucus, what percentage of them would have, um, you know, sided with Daniel Smith on the question. So to me, it was, was it just the authority of the party leader um, thrashing through with this? Uh, anyway. I, yeah, I have no idea. And I suspect the caucus, the conservative caucus now, before, it was in, it's in the Calgary Herald today where he, he argues, he thinks the climate change issue is probably what killed Daniel Smith, the fact that she just denied it existed whatsoever. Even the federal conservatives at least pay some vague sort of lip service to the idea that it exists, They, but vague. And the fact that Daniel Smith wasn't even prepared to go that far, I think was fairly damning. To me, what I, what I see it as happening is it's reflecting a more urban and better educated Alberta. I mean, the fact is science, the, the science is reasonably clear on this, uh, the vast majority of, and I don't want to get into a big debate if there are those of you who disagree, but the vast majority of climate scientists, my colleagues at the university tell me, are pretty universal on this. And I, there, there's always been this element in Alberta politics of distrust of experts, this populist sort of ideal that the common person knows better. And uh, I think that faded a little bit in this election. Uh, and uh, the fact that we have a premier with a university degree, right, which we haven't had for a couple of decades, um, I, those things matter. Party policy is not determined by candidates. The trade-off is it's determined by the central party, and in Alberta particularly, it's determined by the leader. Uh, and so, so I think that was very much Alison Redford. I'm not sure it's particularly relevant what most of the caucus thinks about it, to be honest. But I think it was an issue that definitely at least hurt in the middle. I think most people in Alberta would agree that this does exist. There is substantial disagreement about how far to go with respect to dealing with it. But just even denying that it's a problem, I think put the wild rose quite a bit outside of where most Albertans fall in this, is my take. Hi, Harold. I'm Rob Miyashiro. Um, thank you for your presentation. It was great. The question I have is around polling. I know um, Terry just mentioned something about polling. Part of, part of what the post-mortem of this election was around all the polling and all the numbers and how we were going to have a wild rose majority, and then all of a sudden, oh, maybe it'll be a minority, and then it might be a PC minority. And so who holds the pollsters accountable for the crap they spew during an election? Well, we, we do, ultimately. It was, I have uh, um, abacus research. David Coletto is actually a, 
a friend of mine, and we've we co-authored some stuff on party finance. We spent a few days in Scotland together at a conference. So I sent him a message on Twitter during the election, like trying to prod him. Come on, David, what happened? Like, tell me, tell me what's what's going on. And there was a lot of soul searching about the uh, about the polling. The thing I'll say about the polling is I'm not sure they necessarily got it wrong. Um, I think there's some questions about some of the polls and some of the techniques um, tended to show the wild rules lead quite a bit bigger than other techniques. The polls that seemed to me the ones that I always trusted the most were the Leger polls done for Calgary Herald Edmonton Journal. Um, and Stephen Carter, who uh, worked on Redford's campaign, said he thought those were the most bang on as well. What the polls showed is they showed that the Wild Rose did well in the first couple of weeks, but it did fade away. And, I, and Forum Research did a poll on the Sunday just before the election, and they caught that shift, but it happened towards the end of the election. So they did catch it, but, I mean, they just couldn't carry it through to election day. So I think there was definitely a late shift. Um, but I think those high poll numbers, I think, did spark a bit of a backlash. I think the Liberals would have done substantially better had the Conservatives been leading for the first three weeks of the, the campaign. So I think those, the very polls, in fact, did their, were their undoing. The polls um, are a snapshot at that time. And two weeks into the campaign, I think the Wild Rose was ahead. And I haven't heard anybody contradict that. Um, how much ahead, that, that's up in the air. Um, but that's the snapshot at that time. I, I think part of the problem is the media story that the Conservatives were going to lose is a far more compelling and interesting thing to push than, oh, the Conservatives are going to get reelected for the 12th time. Yay. Let's dust off what we wrote in 2008. It's not as exciting a story. So I think that narrative took hold, and, and it, it was tough to switch off of that. I think the other thing that exacerbates our conception of polling is all these um, – election prediction models, right, that people use, like 308.com and uh, other ones like that. I think they exacerbate this because they look at what the current polling snapshot is and then say, here's what the seats will be. But there's two weeks of the campaign yet. There's a reason we have a four-week campaign. We don't just take a poll at the beginning. Um, and a lot of those were based on 2008. Well, we had three new leaders. The parties had significantly repositioned. We'd had redistricting. There were a lot of incumbents that left. The assumptions are based on what happened in 2008 and the shifts in public opinion. Those, I think those exacerbated the problem. I saw so many people throwing those seat projections at me, and I would basically laugh at people because um, they were based on faulty assumptions to begin with. So I think there's a bunch of things they have taken a beating. I know I did 12 interviews on CBC Radio on the Tuesday after the election from coast to coast talking about polling. They, yeah, they, they've had to defend their actions and their models. Just a couple of other quick things. The other thing that they have to look at is, and we don't see this, is the transparency of when they have people who are undecided but leaning some way. How do they allocate those voters? And the second thing that ties into the, the previous question, when voter turnout is low, a big part of it is just because you poll people and say they vote conservative or liberal or wild rose or NDP doesn't mean they're actually going to go to the polls and show up. Predicting which of those people you're serving are actually going to act on it has become very, very important. And there's not a lot of transparency among pollsters on those kinds of issues, how they handle those questions. Mary Shillington, thank you for your presentation. It was riveting, and, and if you heard the buzz, 
uh, over the meal, you'll know that people were talking about what you had to say, and that's that doesn't always happen. Uh, so thank you. Um, my question is concerning the student vote, and uh, I know I know from some things people have said that, that students didn't go out and vote as much as they might have. Uh, a, they might have voted as their parents have voted. Uh, anyway, and and then the rules about where they could vote, uh, which I gather is unusual for Alberta uh, in Canada. Uh, so I wonder if you can make some comments about those. Uh, th- as I'll deal with the last part of that first. The eligibility rules are, frankly, ridiculous, I think. Um, the fact that students are effectively administratively disenfranchised, how they're supposed to vote back in their home constituency, not where they go to school. I have lots of students who uh, students who care, I mean, the political science students tend to be more motivated than the average student. They were requesting special ballots, and I had one student send me a plaintive plea on Twitter. You can tell I do everything through Twitter. I've mentioned it like five times today. Um, saying, I requested a special ballot and didn't arrive. He got it the Friday before the election. There's no way he can mail, fill it in, mail it, and have it come back. And he requested it in the first couple of days of the campaign. It was a huge, it's a huge problem, and that needs to be changed. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. So that discourages even those who are interested. The broader question of youth, uh, youth voting, if we look at much of the decline of voter turnout, the models all show us that it's largely younger people who don't go. And, and don't turn out. Education counteracts that. All the evidence also shows that university degrees, the fact that we have well-educated young people is offsetting that to some extent. But I can tell you from teaching at the university, I mean, I'm lucky I get to teach political science students who do care and who are interested, but there are vast swaths of our student population who could care less, don't know, don't care, and aren't even actually that ashamed of not knowing and not caring. Um, and that's, that's very sad. Um, and reversing that is not something that's that's easy. There's a whole other SACPA talk uh, on its own. That's that's not something that's easy or there's quick fixes. The only quick fix is mandatory voting. It's making people vote. Um, the uh, students, the students' unions in Alberta made a concerted effort to get people out. I don't know what effect that had, and I don't know. That'll, that'll have to wait for those kinds of studies like my friends are doing at the University of Calgary to see whether that had any kind of discernible impact from 2008. So I just I don't know the data to, to be able to judge whether there were a, was a discernible difference in turnout among students. I, I honestly don't know. My name is Frank Toth. I, uh, I normally bring up the rear, the last question. I'm a little more crippled. Uh, uh, thank you very much for the very astute uh, speech. Uh, it almost scares one to come and ask you a question. <laughs> Secondly, don't, uh, don't be scared, please. Uh, I'm the last, I gave you everything I had. I'm the last so. to be scared of anything. But anyway, the, the right questions I was going to ask is already being asked by the many many candidates that run in the in the election, especially if we should wipe out, make polling illegal. That's number one. But I was going to ask, basically, if we went back to the worldwide election system, one person, one vote, how would how would that relate us to a graph of wh- where the votes actually went in this election? With one person, one vote, do you mean proportional yes, representation? Yes, yes, yes. 
we would have a very different looking um, provincial government. Obviously, we wouldn't have a majority government. And I've been here before. It's not a big secret. I, I, I support electoral reform provincially and federally. I think it's it's badly needed. Um, but we would have had, I mean, obviously a conservative government again. Um, the research shows that proportional representation governments tend to govern more in the center uh, than governments that are elected under our electoral system. So I think you do tend to see governments govern very much in the center that are elected that way. Um, what we do see then is a more vibrant opposition, though, and government cannot take things for granted. I think you would likely see Alison Redford would have had to work with the Liberals to stay in power, and that, that would not be a difficult thing to make work because on most policy things, frankly, they weren't that far apart. That uh, goes back to uh, Shannon Phillips' earlier question. They weren't that far apart on most policy issues. It's... No, it's absolutely true. It, it is the uh, forgotten uh, forgotten thing. Uh, it, it doesn't come up much, and uh, it should. I mean, we one of the big issues we need in this province is to reinvigorate democracy. The legislature is is sad. Um, the way the government can run roughshod over the opposition. Alison Redford has made some comments that she wants to see a larger role for opposition. I hope she carries through with that. Uh, but I would would agree with you. On the question of banning polling, um, I don't support that, even though I think polls have some problems, because parties use them, candidates use them. It seems unfair to deny voters information that parties and candidates have, and I don't see how you can actually ban it. What I'd like to see is I'd like to see a little more media responsibility in how they report polls, and I wouldn't mind legislation that required standard disclosure of certain things about polls, how they're done, when they're done, that have to be reported. I, I have no issues with that. But I wouldn't want to go as far as, to me, banning polls outright. Okay, so time for two more questions. Yeah, uh, I'm Ava Thomas from Pixie Butte. I bring you greetings from the Alberta Liberals. <laughs> I, please send my apologies to them. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't hate you. I really don't. That's Sorry. okay. Uh, thank you for your presentation. You have a well-balanced view without poking fun at any of the candidates or any of the political parties. Much appreciated. That raises your level of well, intelligence and standards much above the average uh, political commentator. Um, my point is I find it difficult to see why people f voted Wild Rose because – there seems to have a policy for every complaint, but very little short on vision. At the forums, they talk about the referendums, the referendums, they're going to have a referendums without explaining how this is going to work. It's a quite a complicated process, I found out, to get a referendum. Mm -hmm. When a referendum is legislated in federal law, like the Canadian Wheat Board singled that selling, they say, we're going to do away with it. They said that in 2008 already, and they're still saying it, even after the fact. So are they dependable? Can we trust them? Thank you. I, I had some issues with some of the Wild Rose things, too, in terms of not filling out details. For example, the balancing the budget pledge without indicating how that's going to happen. And, and there was this commitment that they were going to preserve frontline workers was if there were magical administrative savings somewhere in the middle. So I, I thought there were some details that needed to be ironed out and weren't absolutely clear. I, I agree with you. Um, I think that partly reflects the relative youth of the party. It hasn't actually been around that long. There are some rough edges to, to iron out 
clearly, I, I think. And I think that's part of that move to the center, that if they're serious about contending for power, they absolutely have to make. Um, but the danger is, if you have a base that really believes in a lot of these things that you've been arguing, such as conscience rights, it's tough to do that without alienating the very people who started started you off. So they're in a difficult position that way. But but I agree with you. I, I, I think parts of the platform were quite thin, and uh, it did hurt them at some points. Uh, Art, Art Sanford, and um, just a couple of things to clarify, really not so much a question, but um, uh, when it came to polling, I have a friend of mine said, two questions you want to ask. What was the question and who paid for it? So that's something to think about. Anyways, I wanted to clarify, I, my wife and I were the registration officers. We worked 15 hours on election day in the west side, and the students came out in very large numbers. Uh, we registered them. If they had been in the university from uh, September, they were qualified to vote, and they got to vote. Good. So we signed up special sheets. We signed up more than 200 in the one area we were in on the west side. So the students did come out, and they did well. What we did see in West Lethbridge was a total collapse of the liberal vote that went to the NDP. West Lethbridge was was anomalous for for a number of reasons. Again, I bring you back to the now famous Shannon Phillips effect. It, it was very different. This was not something we saw elsewhere. And I looked like a, a genius to my political science colleagues at other universities because I told them, "Watch Lethbridge West. Lethbridge West is going to be different." I got emails uh, talking about how great my foresight was on this. So, absolutely, that's very true. And I, I commend you for the registration procedures that, that you did, but the provincial law is not altogether clear, and so there's a lot of room open for how strictly you want to interpret it. And I think it needs to be clarified and fixed at the legislative level, whatever the actions. It shouldn't be up to local uh, election administrators to make those kinds of decisions. It should be abundantly clear, and, and I, I think that's a problem. I guess the other thing, signing up 200 students, that's great, but the university has... 8,000, 8,500 students. Uh, th that's good. I'm very glad. I'm glad those 200 students went. But I still worry about, uh, about the numbers. My husband is always saying to me, why do you read fiction when real life is far more interesting? And certainly our provincial politics have been most interesting. I'd like you to join me in thanking Harold for a wonderful presentation today.